When someone begins to question their faith, the last thing church leaders want to do is say the wrong thing or handle it in a way that will further push them away. With so many historical concerns or doctrinal questions, what is a leader supposed to do? I'm happy to report that Leading Saints is here to help with the Questioning Saints Library. This is a full library of 20 plus presentations related to how to minister to an individual who is questioning their faith. We cover topics like how to answer tough questions, maintaining your relationships when someone leaves the church, and how to embrace doctrinal ambiguity. If you want to review all the sessions from the Questioning Saints Library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership-related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. Today I'm on the BYU campus, Provo, Utah, in a uh, typical professor's office with Anthony Sweat, who's the author of a new book called The Holy Covenants. How are you, Anthony? <laughs> you got you got me my my I'm head. Good. I'm good, my brother. Nice. So good to be with you, Kurt. Thanks for having me on. Here. Yeah, well, I always look forward to excuses to to come down here and uh, to talk with you and, and record. I think this is our third, maybe fourth, yeah. uh, conversation. And and if people have not listened to the others, definitely check those out. And so. You wrote another book. What you did one already about uh, called the Holy Invitation about the temple. And yeah. what led to this one? What more did you have to say? Well, first of all, let me say to you. First of all, thanks for doing all the great work. Well, thanks you're doing with this wonderful podcast. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, I wrote this one because the first book I wrote is called the Holy Invitation, and it's more about understanding the temple endowment. It's trying to give a doctrinal and historical an application lens of the endowment. I wrote that one because in my perception, and maybe some of the church leaders who listen here and, and those who are try, you know, trying to help people understand the endowment, they have seen the same thing. that Often people have a difficult time articulating what the endowment is trying to do. So that book is trying to tackle that. I don't presume that it gives the definitive answer but at all because there's so many ways. But one of the weaknesses that the book has, it has a lot of strengths in my view, but one of the weaknesses is I did not go into the covenants of the temple. Mm. And I did that because I wanted the book to remain digestible and readable in one sitting. I didn't want it to be intimidating, particularly for a young adult. And so in this book, this is saying, okay, let's, if that book helps you understand the endowment, the holy covenants is to help you be better endowed with power because covenants and living covenants is what gives us power. So this book goes into the five major laws in the temple and also the covenant to wear the garment and to not reveal sacred teachings. Yeah. And that's the tough thing about this. And I remember my first time going to the temple where it was sort of, you know, I did the whole temple prep thing. It was sort of doctrinal based and and had sort of a general direction, but it wasn't maybe practically helpful stepping in there knowing really what I was yeah. what I was doing, right? And so and with your books and others, it seems like we're making we're doing a better job articulating this experience, why we do it what we do in there in a way that maybe will better prepare people to enter, right? Amen. Yeah. And, and, and we can still do better Yeah, sure. and, and do more. I applaud the church, the institutional church, obviously up front. If we're not taking people to temples.churchofjesuschrist.org and seeing the wonderful resources that are there, uh, we're missing a, a huge thing to help people with temple prep. Yeah. Uh, but I still think we can do more. 
Yeah. To help them. And it seems like, you know, like Elder Bednar and others in, in the recent years have spoken to better help us understand what we can and cannot talk yeah. about in the yeah. temple. And we find out there's a whole lot we can talk about, <laughs> yeah. right? And I, I remember there's sort of been early on this feeling of like, I'm just not even going to talk about anything to keep me safe from talking mm-hmm. about the things I'm not supposed to. Yeah. And I touch on that in this book because yeah. I say, you know, one of the chapters is not revealing sacred teachings of the temple. So mm-hmm. what are those things? And one of the main takeaways is the covenant tells you, or the temple tells you the things yeah. directly uh, not to talk about. And I think in our desire, and I understand our desire to keep sacred things sacred, but in our desire to do that, we have almost created a disservice for a few generations of people who maybe aren't grasping the doctrinal purposes of the endowment as well as they possibly could, and therefore aren't pulling the power from it that they possibly can. Even when I, frankly, when I was writing the Holy Invitation, Mm -hmm. I had put together a whole list of statements of different times when church leaders had publicly discussed the specific covenants of the temple. And I was discouraged from overtly talking about those. Now, that's prior to the church's website. Mm -hmm. That's prior to Elder Bednar's talk. That's prior to the update of the handbook of General Handbook. Mm -hmm. But at that time, when I was writing the Holy Invitation, people were like, ah. And one time I gave a talk where I read some of the specific covenants. And afterward, I had somebody come up to me and said, I don't think you should have talked about those in a public meeting like this. Wow. And I actually read to them. I said, well, it wasn't me. I was actually quoting President Benson. (laughs) It's from the 80s, maybe? Uh, Yeah. yeah. And the person went, oh. And then I showed him and I said, here's a list. And he goes, President Benson said that? And I said, yeah. And he kind of sits there for a second and he goes, I don't think President Benson should have talked about those publicly either. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So my, in my research, my experience has been that, you know, there's no, there's no consensus. I have found that some church leaders are more open mm-hmm. about talking about things within the temple and the temple endowment. Others seem to be more conservative. But in general, often as members of the church, we are the ones who are out of, a, out of an abundance of caution we have kept quiet. The church leadership seems to have said more historically than the average church member is willing to talk about. Yeah. It's kind of a general takeaway. And I would say from my experience as a bishop, often I didn't talk a lot about it because I didn't really know myself, you know, and I was still learning and, and, and you know, absorbing some of these doctrinal principles and reasons why and whatnot. And so, because I heard of some leaders who would spend, they'd say, I need a good hour with somebody who's coming in, preparing to go through the temple unpack that. I'm thinking, I don't know if I can fill, fill 10 minutes, you know, with this yeah. instruction as a leader. And so it's nice to have a, a place to start. It yeah, is. And I give a little challenge sometimes to my classes or in other environments I'm in. I say to people, and it's kind of a fun thing to do, you know, summarize the purpose of the ordinance of baptism in one sentence or less. And most everybody can do it. Mm-hmm. I'll say summarize the purpose of the sacrament in one sentence or less. And they can do it. Summarize the purpose even of a temple ordinance like baptisms for the dead. And they can do it. Summarize even a marriage of a man and a woman to be sealed in the holy temple. And they can do it in one sentence. But if you say, summarize the purpose of the endowment in one sentence or less, their answers are are much less certain, much less sure, Hmm. and all over the place. And so that's evidence to me that we need to do better at teaching more clearly the doctrinal purposes of the endowment and what it's striving to do for us. Yeah. So speak to us. You're currently serving as a bishop. When somebody comes in and says, Bishop, I'm, I'm ready... Go, go to the temple or I'm going on a mission. I'm yeah. going to do this. Like, 
generally, what are you hoping to, what role are you hoping to play as their bishop in that process? Well, I am selfish in that, you know, all of those who are bishops right now, there's a major struggle in trying to be the presiding high priest of the ward and have all finances and callings and meetings and worthiness and ordinances and everything else you balance along with being the young men's president. Right. Every bishop out there just gave a a collective (laughs) amen. This is difficult. Absolutely. It's really hard. One of the things that I, maybe just a side tangent before I answer the question, Mm -hmm. the phrase, I, I do not like the phrase, just focus on the youth because that's impossible. And that's not our role as a bishop is to just focus on the youth. We would Mm -hmm. be abdicating all of our other responsibilities as the presiding high priest. Mm -hmm. But the phrase that's been helpful that my wife gave me was, just make the youth a priority. Make them a priority. And one way that I make the youth a priority is I have specifically said, I want to take temple prep. Um, Oh, wow. So I teach our temple prep class to our youth. And I do it just in the way I do it. I do it every spring. And, And so those who are coming to me saying, hey, you know, I'm you know, of course, others are receiving their endowment who are not just preparing for a mission or graduating seniors or coming home from college. But anybody who who wants to are, is part of this. But every spring, hmm. I do a specific four-week temple prep with our graduating seniors and those who are preparing for the yeah. endowment. And do you do that during the, the second hour or like what are the... No, I do it at home. Oh, I say cool. come, come to my house at three o'clock and the young women's president joins me. On a Sunday afternoon? On a Sunday okay. afternoon. And I say, let's let's walk through, let, let's, let's, we're going to go through four lessons together. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll use the temple prep manual, of course. And okay. I use church, temples.churchjesuschrist.org and I use some of my own stuff, but I specifically say, all right, number one, you know, let's look at the doctrinal purpose of the temple. That's kind of my first, uh, my first one is let's get, let's understand doctrinally what it's trying to do. And then uh, the second one that I do is try to familiarize them with ceremony and ritual. Hmm. We are not really good in the church at that. We like to say that we're a symbolic people, but we're not. We're a very literal people. And what do you mean by that? Like what are some, how are we not? Like, like, let me give you, for example, like almost all of our church meetings are very pedestrian. They're very practical. There is not a lot of ritual to them. The sacrament is about the most ritualistic thing that we do. And if we were to walk into a Catholic church, it would be a stark difference. If you walked into a Catholic church- Like a mass, right? uh, Yeah, a mass. If you were uh, Eastern Orthodox, some of these faiths that have deeply, deeply are centered around ritual and ceremony, they're better at it than we are. We want everything in our church to be pretty utilitarian. We're a utilitarian people. We're a practical people. Our Brigham Young era of the church really comes through still. Mm. And so when we step outside of a regular class or a regular meeting uh, and step into the walls of the Holy Temple, some people aren't overly prepared for the ceremonial and and ritualistic nature of it. It can be a whiplash for sure. So that's my second thing is to try to get them to grasp ceremony and ritual Mm. and why we do it and help them see that ceremony and ritual kind of takes us to a different place. It puts us in a different frame of mind. It imbues solemnity. And I actually help them see ceremonies that they're a part of, like graduation exercises, you know, public wedding ceremonies. Uh, if you're part of the National Honor Society and you're being inducted in, that you have all these kind of ceremonies to imbue these things. And I, so I try to help them see ceremony. Hmm. Then the third thing I do is talk about clothing. 
and specifically uh, show that sacred temple clothing video. Yeah. Talk through the purposes of clothing, what clothing does for us, what the garment represents, why it's so sacred. And the fourth one that I do is all on the covenants, on these five major laws of the of the temple and trying to understand them and how if we live them, it will endow us with power in our life. So yeah, that was a long answer to your question, but what yeah, do I helpful. do when someone comes in? I'm like, I want to teach you. And these are four of the specific things that I, I like yeah. to teach them. Yeah. And a few principles that stand out is just like, as as you do in your way, not that you, everybody has to do it your no, way, no, but no. you- you yeah, create please, space. Please don't misunderstand that. I, <laughs> right, hate, right. I hate even giving suggestions like that. Sure. I don't want to presume that that's the right way to do it yeah, yeah. Uh, or that that's how you should do it. I'm not creating curriculum for the church. Right, exactly. This is just my way that I've tried to do it. Yeah. But I just love that, that you create space for them to think about these things. And maybe another bishop would say, and doesn't have to lead the lead the temple prep course. They obviously, like most do, they sort of delegate that yeah. and, and that's yeah. fine, right? Yep. Uh, but nonetheless, creating the space to really contemplate these things. Yeah. How do you, like with the, I often hear like with the temple prep course, there's sort of this, you know, there's a lot of focus on Adam and Eve and, and these doctrinal points. Is there any way to better enhance that? And I'm not, I don't want to create this feeling of, yeah, just like set that aside and here's some other things to do. But like, how can we leverage that material that's already there? Well, I would say definitely use it. I yeah. don't, I don't want to be critical of the existing material that's yeah. there at all. The reason why I do like what the church is doing, though, is because it better gets at the covenants, it better gets at the doctrinal teachings. The existing material will at least say, you know, when you go into the temple, you're going to take a an symbolic journey mm-hmm. into the presence of God. You know, you'll learn about the creation, the fall. You'll learn about Adam and Eve, and and people participants are a type of Adam and Eve, and so the existing material says that the current material now the former material didn't hmm. in that it focused a little bit more on symbolism and worthiness and and those things. So yeah. those are all necessary as well. But I would say incorporate them and use them, but bring them all together of what's out there. Otherwise, what ends up happening is we talk, the phrase I use is we talk around the temple. Hmm. We talk about everything except for what <laughs> the endowment actually is and what it's trying to do or striving to do. Instead, we talk around it like, here's the worthiness questions, and there's been temples in every dispensation, and all of those are important, but they're not actually going to train somebody to grasp and prepare for the endowment ceremony. Yeah, yeah it's to still leave that space of them actually going to the temple and experiencing the endowment yeah. ceremony for what it is, yeah. rather than sort of filling in them in and, and they're watching a rerun. They'll have the rest of their life to go back and yeah. keep learning, right? And the, and the, dan- the danger in any of this, obviously, is you don't want to give definitive interpretations because mm-hmm. things can be interpreted in more way, more way than one. But I would teach them that. And But if they're not going to grasp the basics, like what was Joseph Smith trying to accomplish as he was talking about endowment? What did endowment mean to him and his yeah. group of people? Uh, what were they doing at the June 1831 conference? What were they you know, doing in the Kirtland Temple? And how did that evolve into what was done in Nauvoo? And Man, if we're if, if we're not helping people understand the foundational doctrine, trying to help to create a nation of priests or a kingdom of priests, as uh, is in the book of Exodus, or yeah. as Joseph says to the Relief Society women, I want to make of this society a kingdom of priests. We're missing it. Yeah. Like we can talk about all this stuff, but if if the people who are getting ready to go through the endowment don't fundamentally understand in a basic, simple sentence 
you are going to enter into a covenant order of potential priests and priestesses to God. And to the degree you live that order, you will be endowed with the power of God and get access to a fullness of his blessings. If we can't articulate that, and if they can't articulate that, then they're going to miss the major thrust of what the endowment's doing in my view. Yeah. And that that leads my mind to just this concept I'm seeing of, it's easy to maybe look at a a modern day evangelical worship service and be like, man, that looks cool, you know? And they're like, the good music, they're loving Jesus, right? It is cool. It is cool. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And I really enjoy that experience. But one thing that always just sort of thrusts me back into the restored gospel is this framework of inviting us to on a covenant path of Mm -hmm. saying, we don't just have Jesus's love here, but we have a a method of guiding people through a progression, a sanctification to have a deeper relationship with God. And then there's a lot of even more Jesus love in that experience. Yeah. And if I, our president Nelson is such a master teacher. He's such a, I mean, obviously he is a prophet, seer and revelator, but he is a master teacher as well. And his phrases like the covenant path are so important to articulate what it is that we're trying to do in the restoration. And if I had to summarize the restoration in one word, I would use the word covenant. Yeah. That's what we're offering that's unique. You know, the Levi Richards version of the of the uh, first vision in the 1843 edition he gives, he says that God told Joseph the everlasting covenant has been broken. Section 22 of the Doctrine and Covenants summarizes the whole purpose for the restoration of the church was to establish the new and everlasting covenant. First Nephi 22, wherefore the Lord God will proceed to do a marvelous work among the Gentiles, even unto the making known of the covenants of the father unto Abraham. Hmm. There are not a lot of churches talking this way on the earth today. Who's talking about covenants of Abraham, creating a covenant-based people? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is leading the way there. And I'm so grateful for prophets who are doing it. And the temple is the place to create a covenant order of people. Yeah. And I think just the framing it that way is so encouraging to people because it can feel like, especially a young adult sort of, oh boy, it can, it can feel heavy. Like I'm going to, I got to make sure I really don't mess up now because I'll be, you know, endowed. Right. But yeah. it's like, no, this is an empowering experience that should encourage you and, and want, help us run to the temple. Right? Completely. Yeah. I, I like to, especially when working with younger people to give them metaphors that, you know, I, I say to them, if you want to understand what's happening is you are entering into the order of the son of God. In section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, it says, create a house of order. Now, we typically interpret that as a house of neatness or a house of organization. Yeah. And that's that's a proper interpretation, but it's also creating an order. Create a house of an order. An order can mean a house of progression or a house of a certain quality or a kind of people like military orders or ranks. And I, I will say to young people, you've all read Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Order of phoenix they yeah. all know it uh-huh. and i'll say what what is the order of phoenix and it does not take but 20 seconds for <laughs> someone to go oh it's a group of people who have power to overcome Voldemort." and i'm like and i don't want to get too nerdy making star wars and harry potter comparisons to the gospel <laughs> right but if we can start to think of the order of the son of god in a different way and start to interpret it as oh this is a covenant group of people who are going to be endowed or given capacity. That's another interpretation of endowment is capacity. 
They're going to be given power and capacity in their lives to overcome evil, to discern between right and wrong, to call down the ministering of angels, to be able to, re- to know how to ask and receive revelation, to be able to progress, to be able to be strengthened, to be able to, to be born up, uh, to be able to ultimately part the veil and come into the presence of God and know him and know his purposes and his plans. I'll, I say to young people all the time, don't you want that power? Yeah. Don't you want to know God? Don't you want to know his plan for you? Don't you want to understand him, be able to hear him? Don't you want to be able to discern in the confusing voices of the world? And the more that you can understand what the ritual of the endowment is striving to do, uh, that's the power you're going to get and much more in your life. Yeah. You'll be part of a select order, a sacred order of people who are given power to help conquer the the evils of this world. Yeah. It's yeah. really cool to me. Yeah. I, I, and I think it helps putting in the context of some of these supernatural stories and, and movies and things just because that's where maybe they've seen it and we haven't done as a good job maybe articulating how that actually is real life for us as yeah. with the, the power and keys that, that have been restored. And I love just this concept. I think Brad Wilcox talks about that. We, we make covenants so we have the power to keep covenants. Yeah. You know, like it's not this, oh, well, you're going to be at a higher standard and now you got to try a real harder. Like, no, you will find additional power in these covenants, mm-hmm. not just because you won't fi- it won't highlight your weakness. Yeah. It'll, it'll highlight your strength or God will give you strength. And the covenants are, I like Elder Dale Renlund and his wife, Sister Ruth Renlund. They have a great saying, I'm trying to recall it from my memory, so sorry for my hesitation. Covenants guarantee the future behavior of the participant. Hmm. I think that's a close quote. I'm just saying that from memory. They guarantee the future behavior of the participant. We're not making covenants for that moment. We're making covenants for future moments. Hmm. And that's one of the ways covenants give us power because we're all going to head out into the world and the world's challenging and we can get confused very easy. But if I ask myself questions like, what does my covenant of consecration tell me to do right now? What does my covenant of obedience to the law of the Lord tell me to do right now? What does my covenant to live the higher teachings of our Savior's gospel, what's it telling me to do right now? What's my covenant of chastity telling me to do? Or my covenant of sacrifice? Those will give you strength and those will give you pillars to look to that are steady in the vacillation of everyday life. I often will say to people, listen to your covenants more than you listen to your, you know, the state of your emotions or the the state of your feelings or, because those Mm -hmm. are very variable, but covenants remain, covenants remain constant. Yeah. That's one of the powers they give us. So going back to, you know, you have this temple prep experience and then by the time you're at your bishop's office, engaging with this person is maybe more administrative, just getting that temple recommend interview done and yeah. whatnot, or does anything else, any more instruction happen elsewhere? I mean, obviously the, the main job is to determine, in the bishop's office, to me, the main job there is to determine their spiritual worthiness and readiness. And yeah. as the keys determine that you can recommend them to the state presidency for it. But and I'll talk, you know, I'll, particularly for those, if they have, if I haven't been able to do temple prep with them. I will schedule extra time to say, can we take some time to understand the endowment together so that I want to make sure you're feeling prepared, feeling ready. Can I, can I give you some instruction? Can I answer any questions? Yeah. To me, those are my favorite moments as a bishop. Yeah. Those are 
a really sacred, really neat moment. And just from your experience as a bishop, but also as teaching young adults at BYU, like, are there typical concerns or questions that often come to the surface as it relates to going to the temple? Yeah. I mean, obviously there are a number of questions. I don't know. I don't know, brother. I don't know because they're so varied. Yeah. But I think the principle there is like not just teaching the temple prep class and then moving on to the administration of, you know, paperwork and whatnot, but to take time with each individual and say, all right, what's got you concerned? What questions do you have? Are you excited? You know, sort of taking a pulse of of where they're at. Yeah. Because there will be different concerns and it's important that we listen to those. I think it's important we follow up also, Hmm. you know, and help them, you know, that question of how was it, you know? Mm Sometimes people are like, it was great. Other times people are like, that was it. Other times people are like, it was terrible. I think I used the word weird when I first went, right? It was different. It (laughs) was weird. It was, and those are important follow-up discussions to be able to have with people to to work with them. Yeah. Because I I remember my sister shares her experience that she sort of avoided the temple after her first time because she just wasn't sure how to, how to absorb it all. And it wasn't, you know, it was also new to her, right? And, And I don't think anybody wants people to feel like they need to take a break because, wow, that was overwhelming, right? So. No. And the, the only reason I hedge and hesitate there and kind of fumbled in my response is just because the questions are so different yeah. beforehand. And then also the experience is so individualized afterward and, and maybe the concerns that people have. That's why I do think it's important to follow up. But I am a, I am a big believer in being very clear. I agree with the general sentiment that people should know what they're going to enter into mm-hmm. before the moment. Yeah. So that's why I do think it's important to articulate the covenants and to give an overview of the endowment ceremony in appropriate ways for them. Yeah. Um, so they can know how to prepare. And in the context of asking questions like after their first temple experience, I mean, that's sort of when it would go back to, well, what can I talk about? Because, you know, they may come to you like, well, have specific questions about the ceremony or like, what's the apron all about? Or, you know, like yeah. any any advice or guidance that you personally have as far as answering questions after they've had that experience? Yeah, I think when you're answering the questions that they have, it's important. A general principle that I, kind of the principles that I run through them with are, did I make a specific covenant in the temple to not disclose this thing? Mm-hmm. If it is, then I'm not, I can't talk about it with you. Right. Or, I don't, or we shouldn't talk about it outside the temple. Secondly, do I see the church leadership talking about this? And if it's like, no, I didn't, you know, we can talk about this. I do see church leadership talking about this. Is it in an appropriate setting and in a way that can be done in a spirit of reverence and understanding? Mm-hmm. And I think from there, then you, then you move forward and, and, and start, to, yeah. start to talk with them. Yeah. And I love how you mentioned earlier just this, it's not so much about the interpretation as it is about the questions that maybe you're encouraging them to ask, you know, because I think there is this feeling of like, we want the old gray hair that's read all of, uh, you know, Hugh Nibley's books to sit us down and just break it down for us. Right. But yeah. to let them have that experience and move into it with, with questions rather than like, oh, well, my uncle told me once that this means this yeah. and that means that. Right. Yeah. And, and I'd be hesitant on that. Yeah. I'd be reticent. Maybe even somebody's listening to me right now saying, oh, he's, he's being overly declarative or definitive or, or I don't pretend at all that the way I see it and understand it, or maybe have summarized endowment and the journey of the ceremony is the right way or the only way. Hmm. The beauty of that ceremony is that it's, it's multi-dimensional. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's better to maybe ask questions to help them discern their own layers of meaning and understanding. And uh, instead of being like, this is exactly what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that could actually close some things off, some potential. I yeah. don't think there's any harm in saying, here's what I interpret it that it could mean or one of its potential meanings. But if it's like, this is that, I yeah. don't know, we might be closing off yeah. uh, some things there. And I, that's what I appreciate so much about the experience is that it can be, you know, some may classify it as, you know, repetitious. Others may say, well, actually I can step into this and kind of have a very intimate personal experience, even though it's the same thing we heard last time or, or whatnot, yeah. you know, cause I'm asking different questions or I'm, something stands out more than others. Yeah. You know, so, so let's talk about the, the five laws you have a chapter for each one. And this, yeah. I think up until recently, like you said, you maybe mentioned it from when President Benson talked about these five laws, but I think up until recently sort of feels like that's what we can't talk about. You can't say what the five yeah. things are when in reality, those are the covenants we're going in there to make. So I think it's important that people know what those covenants and laws are before they walk in that temple. Amen. Yeah. I agree. And they're not, most of them aren't necessarily new or it's like you've heard them before in just a different context. The thing that's right? interesting is when I was doing my research on this, because I, I want to make sure that I don't ever, you know, get ahead of, yeah. I trust the wisdom of, of those who have the keys to preside over this kingdom and I want to be in harmony and in line with them. But, you know, when I was doing my research for this to, to help make sure that I am uh, as best as possible, I did find some individual statements by certain church leaders who said, you should not talk about the covenants of the temple outside the temple. Hmm. I found that. I mean, there is a statement that says that. Now, that's from a, a few decades ago. and But you find others who don't feel the same. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, to the heart of it, I taking a cue from the current church, they've published, here's prophetic teachings on the temple and the general handbook of instructions. I forget if it's in section... 27, 28, or 29, it's around there. Mm -hmm. They list the five major laws and they give a definition of them in there. And they summarize the five major covenants on, on the church's website. Nice. So I do think today, taking that cue, we can say, these are the five covenants. Let's talk about them. Let's try to understand them. How do we live them? How do we, how do we prepare for them? Yeah. And uh, maybe give us just a brief overview, because obviously you have a chapter for each one of these yeah. that like with each one, you know, starting with obedience, like what... And again, you, you you don't want to create this interpretation or or this is it, you yeah. know, let it be said. Yeah. But so let it be written. Let it be there written. it is, <laughs> chiseled in stone for eternity. <laughs> so what what can we understand about these things? Because obedience is sort of like, it sort of makes sense, but then we get to the law of the gospel and sort of like, yeah. huh? like the law of the gospel. Like, yeah. Because it's such this general term that we yeah. use, right? So how did you approach those chapters as far as explaining just sort of what, what did you hope do you to want accomplish? Me to go through each? Yeah, let's do it. Can yeah. I give a big picture and then go through yeah. maybe a quick summary of each one? Yeah. A big picture perspective is I would want people to understand that you're entering into an order and this is entering into the order of the son of God or the order of Melchizedek. This is how prophets live. This is what will help bring power into your life. And even more specifically, sometimes... A challenge of ours is where is Jesus in the temple? Mm, yeah. And it's not, if you look for Jesus, you'll find him. But I think you see Jesus in these five covenants of the temple. And so if we're entering into the order of the son of God, it means we're patterning our life after the son of God. And what was Jesus? Well, Jesus was perfectly obedient. Jesus was perfectly willing to live and he exemplified the gospel. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the definition of sacrifice. Yeah. Jesus is the definition of chaste, and I'll talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is the epitome of a consecrated life to doing the will of the Father. So to me, that order of the Son of God literally is saying, here's how to pattern your life after God, his Son who came here to show us. 
So I love seeing Jesus in those five major yeah. covenants. Specifically, if you take each of those, you know, the first covenant is that we'll be obedient, specifically that we'll be obedient to the law of the Lord. And I think that's important because we have to understand that obedience to the law of the Lord means we're, we obey his revealed will for our time. His law comes through his authorized servants. They have the power to declare his law. If we were in Moses's time, the law would be a little different. If we were in Abraham's time, the law would be a little different. If we were even in Joseph Smith's time, the law was a little different. The word of wisdom was not viewed the same in 1833 as it was viewed in 1933 or 2022. Mm -hmm. And so in essence, what we're doing is we're with obedience to the law of the Lord. We're saying, I am willing to commit to your revealed law for my time. And I am willing to learn it and follow it and implement it. To me, the law of the gospel, obviously the gospel, the simplest way to summarize it is to use the scriptural definition, faith in Christ, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. But as we live that gospel, it sanctifies us, it purifies us. And one of the reasons why it's connected to living the teachings of Jesus, particularly as exemplified in the Sermon on the Mount, is because as we mourn, as we become meek, taking the Beatitudes, mm -hmm. as we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we will begin to look outward towards others. We will begin to live on higher planes like prophets who have gone before. And so there's this idea in the Beatitudes of here's a telestial way to live. Here's a terrestrial way to live. Here's a celestial way mm -hmm. to live. And a telestial way to live is commit adultery. A terrestrial way to live is don't commit adultery, but you have think evil thoughts. A celestial way to live is you don't let those immoral lusts enter into your heart. Mm-hmm. So to me, when we're committing to live the law of the gospel, we're committing to live this celestial, higher, marvelously challenging way of life that Jesus has exemplified for us. It's the turn the other cheek, revile not against those who revile. And that's why that there's things that are connected to endowment, like get rid of these base, crude, crass ways of living and laughing and talking and seeing and, and being and live a holier way. Yeah. With uh, the law of, of sacrifice in particular, to me, sacrifice is the release of the unholy. It is letting go of the things that are keeping us back from the kingdom in particular. And I know that we can, sometimes with sacrifice, we're like, you know, it's, it's that I'm willing to die for the church. Right, yeah. <laughs> and that sounds so dramatic and like it should be on some sort of a, you know, some epic film that will be made a hundred years from now. <laughs> But 99.999% or whatever the stats are of Latter-day Saints don't ever give their literal life for the kingdom. Mm -hmm. To me, it's giving up your natural man. It's sacrificing that life to live a holier life. To give that up is the law of sacrifice as a whole. The law of chastity is, to me, the most unique one. And even in the book, admittedly, it was to grab attention. But my very first line was, the law of chastity is not just about sex. Because when we only frame it that way, I think we're missing something. Hmm. The law of chastity ultimately is about trust. That's how I like to frame it. It's about trust. It's specifically about, can I be trusted with power? And there's no power greater than the power to create life. And think about having faith in God. Could you imagine having faith in God who couldn't control power? That'd be a scary God. That would be but. a scary God. And that's actually a God that some people have imagined up. Hmm. But what the restoration has shown us is we believe in a God who is perfectly in control of his own desires. He has circumscribed them. The Book of Mormon even says God abides by law. 
Otherwise, God would cease to be God. That is, wow, Mm -hmm. what a revolutionary doctrine. In other words, one of the things that makes God God is he knows how to circumscribe his own power and passion. That's fascinating to me. So, you cannot sit on a throne to rule and reign in eternity if you and I don't figure out how to control our power and our passions. Yeah. It makes me think of sometimes we imagine heaven of like, when we go to heaven, we can just eat pie all the time because <laughs> pie is great and heaven's great. And so we just eat pie all the time. Yeah. When in reality, like, well, what if we actually eat really healthy all the time? Not because, you know, that, but more, more because that we, we've actually become so powerful in, in how we, how we treat ourselves yeah. that we actually want to eat broccoli, yeah. you know, all the time because we know it's the best for us. Yeah. And chastity is, is that it is. Do I know how to be trusted to use influence righteously? Yeah. That's how I'd summarize the law of chastity. Hmm. With what I want, together with, if we're using sexual relations, with what a spouse wants, together with what God wants. Yeah. So it's obviously referring to uh, sexual relations, but that can almost be a metaphor for all things, all passions in our life, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I've often wondered, and I'm sorry if I'm taking too long on chastity here. This is interesting. It's it's a different discussion than the typical law of chastity discussion. And one of the fundamental questions I ask myself as I've gone through the endowment ceremony multiple times is why is chastity sandwiched in between things like the law of sacrifice and the law of consecration? Mm. We don't make a covenant to preach the gospel, for example. Mm. We don't make a covenant to be kind to other people. We don't make a covenant to... Keep the Sabbath day holy. Those could very well be in there and surely those would give us additional power in our life. Why live the law of sacrifice, live the law of chastity, live the law of consecration? Well, because I think chastity is tied to sacrifice and consecration in that it is somebody who is learning how to let go, release the unholy, to embrace the holy and use it in a way that can be trusted for God's purposes that then you can dedicate it as a consecrated person. Mm. So that's, that's why helpful. Yeah. That, that's why it's so important. And then the last, the law of consecration, the only thing I'd say on that is, let's please move past confusions between the law of consecration and applications of the law. Mm. Sometimes when I hear people say, oh, we don't live the law of consecration today, what they're doing is they're confusing terminologies. Nobody would say we're not living the law of sacrifice today because we don't go to the bishop and hand him a lamb right. and say, slaughter this. We understand that's an application of the law and that the Lord has given us a different application of the law today, but the law remains the same. And the law of consecration is that we dedicate ourselves. We dedicate our time, our talents, our means to do what God wants us to do with those, to do his will and to build up his kingdom upon this earth. And then the way we apply that law varies. Yeah. From time to time, epic to epic, person to person. Yeah. Often heard, maybe this is a fringe opinion, but people sort of say like, we covenant to the law of consecration because we don't live it now, but someday, someday we will and we'll all be under that that covenant. And maybe this is one area where maybe I'll demonstrate where I think what is and is not appropriate to talk about. Mm -hmm. It's important that we understand that the covenant is that we that we will live the law of consecration, that we do live it. Mm-hmm. But the, our covenant that we're making is to live it how it's taught in the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm. That's what we're accepting. We're not making a promise. If you listen to the covenant very carefully, it's not saying that I promise that one day I will live it when it's brought back in the millennial reign. 
We're making a covenant that we will live this law to dedicate our time, talents, and means to build up the kingdom and that our way that we're going to understand and accept how it's been revealed has been how it's been taught in the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah. And is that project meaning onto just our, our lay ministry and whatnot that, you know, we're asked to do a lot in this church and to serve and to lead in ways that maybe could be attached to that covenant that, you know, you're a pretty good teacher and well, we need you to come into our, your local ward and be the bishop and do some teaching from time to time. Is that an appropriate way to look at that? hundred percent. How do you know if you're living the law of consecration today? I'd give three ways. Number one, do you do what the prophets have revealed with your time, talents, and means that they've given to every church member? So are you paying your tithing? Are you giving mm-hmm. a generous offering? Are you consecrating one day out of seven to make it a holy day unto the Lord? Are you serving in the church? Are you ministering to others? These are basics they've given all of us. Mm-hmm. The second is, am I listening to personal promptings that I am getting of what I should do with my time, my talents, my means? So when I wake up in the morning and I say, God, please direct me today. I want to know your will. I want to do your will. I want to implement your will. That's consecration. Yeah. And when the Lord prompts you and says, yeah, with your time today, I want you to go home a little earlier from work and spend it with your son to get his Pinewood Derby car ready or whatever. That's consecration. It might not sound like it, but it is. You're saying to the Lord, I'm willing to dedicate my time to do what you want me to do with it for your will and your purposes to build up your church and kingdom. Yeah. So callings, of course, fall into that. Yeah as well. Yeah. I had a wonderful man one time when I extended a calling to him. I sat down and did all the hedging that we typically do, you know, before. <laughs> what are we, you talking about? <laughs> uh, okay. So maybe it's just me. And as I was doing that, he just stopped and he goes, Brother Sweat, he says, whatever you're going to ask me to do, he said, I want you to know that I'm a consecrated saint and I'm willing to give my time and my talents and my means to build up the church and kingdom. Bam. Like yeah. it was the coolest interview. Huh. The uh, coolest interview ever. So, nice. yeah. The third one I'd say, though, with consecration is that you au- you also proactively use your agency to represent the Lord. Meaning, you know, section 58, it is not meet that I should command in all things, for he that is compelled in all things the same is a slothful and is not a wise steward. Mm-hmm. Verily I say unto you, men and women must be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and choice because the power is in them, wherein they are agents unto themselves. You and I know the Lord's will. He's given it. We know what he wants done. He doesn't have to compel or command in all things. Sometimes we just need to act and then say to the Lord, was that appropriate? Yeah. Uh, is that what you wanted done? If not, help me to repent and, and be better. Yeah. Reminds me of one of my favorite scriptures you taught me, 128 verse 9, as far as that's such a strong leadership principle of like, sometimes as leaders, we can't just wait around, wait for the scroll to fall yeah. from heaven. We have to just act because we've been endowed and, yeah. and given keys to act. You are the agent. Yeah, the agent. Um, yeah. Uh, in your own stewardship to act for the Lord. Yeah, it's powerful. Anything else as far as, I, I so what I'm learning here is like helping individuals, you know, create space for them to engage with these doctrines of the gospel, getting them familiar or comfortable with ceremony and helping them think through this, the ceremonial practice of, you know, mm-hmm. religion in general, and then clothing, covenants and whatnot, anything, you know, it seems like uh, garments have become such a, a hot button, you know, yeah. some that, anyways, it's just any, any advice on, on garments and there's obviously the statement and maybe there's nothing more to be said, you know, the statement that that's read during yeah. temple recommend, but I love in the book, you give some examples of, you know, there's other religions that have clothing and whatnot and just how they, 
how we can see them that we're we're not just putting on clothing, we're putting on Jesus Christ. Yeah. Right. But any, anything else you'd add to the concept of garments? Yeah. I mean, obviously this is a personal question and it's a sensitive question. Mm-hmm. But I think if again, if we can teach the doctrinal purposes, I really believe President Packer when he says that true doctrine understood changes attitudes and behavior. Mm-hmm. Teaching people doctrine will change behavior quickly, more quickly than talking about behavior will change behavior. So let's quit talking about behavior and let's teach the doctrine of it and power that comes in the teaching of the garment and what the garment represents as a reminder of our covenants. It is a symbol that we are part of a holy order, a covenant people, that we are to be priests and priestesses to God. It's obviously a a powerful symbol of the atonement of us putting on Christ and his ability to cover us as so many have taught so well. You know, that's that's not a unique or original idea to me at all. Yeah. I think as we teach those purposes, it helps people to make better decisions that are more doctrinally informed to guide their behavior. I do think it's important that we don't weaponize the garment, that we don't scroll through social media feeds and go, man, I wonder if he or she is or is not, I do they have garments on there? Mm-hmm. Like, let's not do that. That's not the intent of the garment. Yeah. And so, yeah, as a maybe as a church leader, we understand the statement. We answer the temple recommend question. Do you wear the garment as instructed in the endowment? Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the things we can do to help that is to help everybody understand the doctrinal symbols and reasons for the garment yeah. as a whole. Awesome. Anything we're missing? Oh, man, we're we, missing so much. I mean, so you got to go read the book, obviously. I mean, No. <laughs> But I mean, that's sort of a good crash course of just like, because I remember being the bishop, just sort of needing some general direction. Like, what am I, am I serving this person well by preparing them for the temple or, you know, they answered the question, I'll just sign the thing and and we'll move on. But there's maybe more we can do to help them have a really positive experience. And, and I don't want, I'm I'm always hesitant on anything like this. Uh, There's nothing worse than being a leader and going to a meeting and you leave the meeting burdened. Um, (laughs) Like, oh man, I'm just a failure and I have Mm. so much that I'm not living up to. You know, maybe when I shared my example, that's that's a personal choice by me as a bishop. Trust me, I'm failing on a thousand fronts, but of me saying, I want to teach the temple prep course, Mm -hmm. particularly to our, our younger people as they're preparing. That's just my decision. Please, that doesn't have to, I'm not saying that's what you should do. Right. But maybe the last thing I would say that I think is helpful, I'm so grateful for, again, prophet seers and revelators who are emphasizing a home-centered and a church-supported model. And if any woman or man is listening to this and saying, ah, I, I don't understand this or I don't have the time or the ability to organize this, I need other people to do it. Maybe the only one thing I think we could all do as leaders in the church is to help parents who can teach these things to their children. And obviously there, there are some who aren't in that case. I understand that. But in the cases where, where it's helpful, like I love sending, like I just say, here's a link. I send it to the parents and the young adult and say, study this together, talk about them. I've even given them homework. Will you go home and talk to mom or dad or both about what is it about the endowment that they love? What do the covenants of the endowment mean to them? Have mom or dad tell you how the how their temple covenants have guided their daily life practically in the last week. I've sent home discussion questions like this. So you don't have to do it all as a leader in the church, but I do think there's some power in where it's possible to let the parents in a home-centered approach, give them the license, give them the permission, 
give them the window and the opportunity to talk about the Holy Temple with their children. That's powerful to me. Awesome. So the Holy Covenant's uh, available on, online or anywhere you, you get books and you, check you, it out and take a dive in. Wherever fine LDS books are sold. <laughs> I don't know what you want to say there. It's published by Deseret Book. Yeah. And um, so you can get it through through them and anywhere that their books are sold. Awesome. Maybe to close, just speak to a room full of leaders as far as maybe that, that discouraged leader who's just overwhelmed. What power can they draw on? How could they frame their temple experience to give them more encouragement and power in, in the ways they serve in their calling? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say go to the Holy Temple and feel the uplift that's there. Draw on, uh, you know, the, the Holy Temple is house of progression. It's a house about all of us growing from telestial to terrestrial to celestial. It's a house about all of us coming unto God to get further understanding from him. It's a house of revelation. So use that as a pattern for all of us. I don't think God wants any of us to remain fallen, crestfallen, discouraged in the Garden of Eden. He'll send us his Holy Spirit, his son, his messengers, his angels, his truths, his light. He wants us all to progress. So if if there's any leader out there feeling that way, because I felt that way too, uh, my experience and one thing that's helped me is God's house is a house of progression and our callings are miniature versions of that, of, of learning and progressing to become more like his son. So don't get discouraged. Just keep striving to follow his son. If you don't get discouraged, I won't either. Remember to access the Questioning Saints Library for 14 days visit leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.